Are we live? Is this live? Hello, hello, friends. Welcome back to Plat Avenger on Twitch TV. My name is John Boyer, Professor Boyer at Virginia Tech, home of the Fighting Hokies, doing once more all the good I can do to educate the world about what the hell is going on, especially with current events and major world powers and stuff like that. Uh, this is an experimental thing we're doing here as part of our college class called World Regional Geography at Virginia Tech. Every week I will pick a topic or topics and do expanded lectures on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday nights, what we're shooting for right now. And for those that joined us at all in the last couple weeks, we spent all of last week talking about China uh, and the rise of China and territorial ambitions and territorial titillations. And we ended up doing three different lectures on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, each that went over two hours long. <laughs> I thought for sure I could do a whole lecture on China in two hours. That was not meant to be. In fact, not even two and not even three. We're on part four of that lecture where we talk about some uh, power projecting abroad from China. What I mean by that is we can go ahead and get to it, uh, is that we spent the first lecture or two talking about uh, the rise of China in the modern era, how it kind of got behind its period of humiliation, uh, and then its rise back into uh, preeminence as a world power. And we were just on the cusp of getting to the kind of full-fledged yes. And here they're back in uh, full, fine form as a major world power. This is China we're talking about. Uh, in a world that has been dominated by the United States of America as the only and sole world superpower for, gosh, since about 1989 or 1990. I think it's time that we all just admit, yes, it is now a two-power a world between the United States and China. Russia's none too happy to hear about that, but that is the world in which we find ourselves, and this is the world of the very near, if not distant, future. So I wanted people to be a, bit, a little bit more educated about these things. Last time we had gotten through uh, six hours of lecture and we finished up the section I called territorial titillations, where we were chatting about China uh, kind of reasserting uh, its land base, uh, reasserting control over Tibet, uh, Inner Mongolia, Xinjiang, stuff we talked up, up. And we also then started to talk about the Taiwan issue. We finished talking about the Taiwan issue, about how it soon will be reincorporated uh, into China proper. Sorry to all my Taiwanese friends who still have aspirations of self-sovereignty. Uh, and we ended talking a little bit, oh, and there's other territorial ambitions that uh, China has just on its land base. Uh, that's why you've seen in the last month and a half to two months uh, uh, fractious relations between India and China because they have a border dispute, several parts of the India-China border under dispute. And in the last month and a half, there's been soldiers on both sides who have literally beaten each other to death with sticks because they don't have guns up in this high alpine Himalayan high altitude area, which no human should ever be even living in anyway, but they're fighting over the border there. So we got through this whole section of here's the uh, uh, China reasserting its land base. And for our final chapter, now China has, I believe, uh, about completed that. Still has got to wrap up Taiwan and still has to sort things out with uh, India. Uh, and, and that could take time. However, China's already passed that on to the next phase of it's not satisfied with just its 
land empire now. It is projecting its power outward to the rest of the world. Lots of different images here. Uh, some nuclear weapons, some battleships, some aircraft carriers. There's some trade issues involved here. There's some ter other territorial disputes that are outside of China involved here. Let's get to it, shall we? Now, before we can get to, wow, how is China suddenly pushing its power out to all these other parts of the world? And why is Boyer already suggesting they are a world power? Because that's what world powers do. They project their power out to the rest of the world, i.e. see the Soviet Union or the United States of America, or go back a couple hundred years to the British Empire, or the French Empire, or the German Empire. So empires, big, strong powers, they project their power to other parts of the planet. China is doing something that is entirely natural, but we find it odd. I say we, most of the outside world, and certainly almost all Americans, find it odd because it's China's never done that before, right? Well, they have, and they've done it plenty of times in the past 5,000 years, but they've not done it in the last couple hundred years. And that's why it's so unique and novel to us and so shocking to many Americans. I do like to point out, uh, before we go any further, uh, the United States of America is about 200 years old. Roughly, give or take, ah, hell, call it 250 if you like. Compare American history to Chinese history, which is something on the order of four to five thousand years old. America, 200 to 250. China, four to five thousand. So it, it's no coincidence that most Americans are stunned or feel threatened by the rise of China because they see it as the first time this has ever happened and it feels threatening to them. And that's because the entire history of the United States for basically the last 200 years, China has been depressed, has lived through what we call its period of humiliation. You see here in bullet point three, it totally sucked from 1750 to 1950, roughly the entire history of the United States. China has been down and out, but China is back now. And that's where I'm picking up now. Okay. America, this, this much history, China, this much sucky history, China's whole history is all this. So that's why we find confusion in why China seems so fractious and frictious now and, and doing things. And we're like, wait, wait, they're not supposed to do that. Yeah, they, they're not, they're not. how did they get to this point? Let's get to that. And then I'll talk about specific issues that other countries, particularly the United States, are having with China as it expands its power outward from its core area. A thing number five you need to know to understand about China in the modern era is the dragon is awake. Uh, China is back and it is back in fine, fine form. And the rebuilding process took a while. Again, for those of you that want the whole backstory that I've given about China, and it is a very abbreviated, generalized backstory to be sure. But if you want the whole backstory, you can go watch the other eight hours we podcasted last week talking about the history of China up till about 1949 when they finished up their civil war. The Communist Party took control of China proper, formed it up, centralized the government, got things back on track, and then started to rebuild their society and rebuild their empire. Okay. That's what I'm picking up right now. So they, 1949, China stood back up. Civil War over, World War II is over. Japanese uh, troops that had uh, invaded and occupied China pushed out. China game back on. They are starting the modern era exactly in 1949. 
In the 1950s and 1960s, they had this thing called the Great Leap Forward. Um, and this was the Chinese experiment with communism. And quite frankly, I think at this hindsight in history, we can go ahead and call it an experiment with communism. Before I go any further, a lot of folks in the American audience will say, well, China is communist. They're communists. They've got communists right in their name. The, the CCP or something like Communist Party of China, communist. China has a single political party in charge of it. That is true. And that political party calls itself the Communist Party. Also true. China in no way, shape, or form is a communist country anymore, though. Try to even forget the word communist when you think about modern China. Communism is a system, and in the 1950s and 1960s, and even into the 70s and 80s, China was experimenting with Soviet-style communist command economy principles. Communism is when the state owns and controls everything on behalf of its people. So it owns all the land and all the resources and all the factories and all the doctor's offices and all the libraries. And it owns every all the corn and the coal. It owns everything. And then it provides jobs for its people to work and provides the coal and the doctor's offices and the libraries and the corn to the people. That's what communism is supposed to do. Uh, for those that know any history at all, we all know that it has failed every single time the system has been attempted. It has failed. So I'm giving you the gloss over of China's experiment flirtation with communism. Because when Mao came to power, that's Mao Zedong, the hero of the Civil War, the leader of the Chinese Communist Party, unifier of the country, uh, they were communists. They're like, we're going to start this thing called Communist China. Uh, and in 1950s and 60s, they attempted to do what the Soviet Union had done in the 1930s and 40s. That is to uh, collectivize agriculture, force the country, uh, speed up its industrialization, organize the entire economy, a singular entity organizing every component of the economy. Therefore, in theory, it will run faster, run better. We can industrialize faster. We can get back on track. We can grow more food. We can make more factories. We can do more stuff. And so they did all that. And everybody said, or at least told Mao for a decade or two, everything's great. And everybody was lying. Because <laughs> the system didn't work that great. And millions and millions of Chinese people died of famine and natural disaster in this era of this great leap forward. Uh, in its attempt to make this communist utopia work, in which everybody wanted it to work so badly, they just kept lying about the results. Question from Twitch. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot. I got the Twitch chat room in front of me now, too. I'll try to look down as much as I can. Say hello to NPO04. Uh, to, oh, no, it's Jammy. What's up, Jammy? Uh, Plaid Katie says hello. 11780 uh, has this awesome head that looks surprised. Uh, Billy Bob Hopnop202 says, well, this is different. And um, and L of 7800 also writes, when this was this when Tiananmen Square happened? Not yet. We'll get to Tiananmen Square in a minute. Uh, Mr. Gaming Platypus says, do you think that communism is an effective tool for industrialization of a nation? Um, it's interesting you use the word nation, uh, uh, Mr. Gaming Platypus. If you have a true nation... Uh, and nation is actually a different term than state. A state is a political entity, a sovereign state. 
We have about 195 sovereign states on planet Earth right now. Sovereign states are the system by which we all talk about states. There's Uganda and Mexico and Russia and the United States. Uh, so nation is a word that connotates more of a collective culture, a, a, perhaps a common ethnicity and language and religion, a nation of people. And so I only bring that up, uh, a platypus, because in, indeed, if you have a kind of homogeneous nation of humans and they're all on board for a project because they're all in it together and they all are from the same group, yes, you can do quite a few things and get some things done. Uh, the problem is that there aren't many states on planet Earth that are just one nation of people, and so people have differing opinions. Well, hell, even people within a nation have differing opinions. But if you have a group of people that are feel this collective cultural energy and, and togetherness, yes, they can do lots of stuff. Uh, it doesn't happen that often under threat of force or a gun. Uh, however, the Soviet Union did a fair job of it. We often make fun, I often, I make fun of communism all the time. Most people do, because it just doesn't work in the long scheme of things. But you do have to give some street cred to the Soviet Union, which was the first country that ever even attempted communism. And we, you know, think of Russia today, the remnants of the Soviet Union, as kind of a failed state. You know, communism collapsed, the USSR went away, they sucked, they were broke, their economy was horrific. It was all sorts of... Uh, largesse and, and, and uh, chaos and just poor systems. And that usually is the result of communism. However, you do have to give them some street cred because under Joseph Stalin, under a iron-fisted Joseph Stalin, and combined with a collective sense of energy of the Russian people, they did really move Russia forward. Russia, I should say, the Soviet Union, uh, really was moved forward uh, at a very rapid technological rate uh, in the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s. Stalin really did catch Russia up. Again, Russia slash Soviet Union. Uh, when the communists took over, remember, Russia was a czarist state. It still had a king. They called him a czar. They were woefully behind. They just got their asses handed to them by the Japanese in a war. They just lost, They were horribly losing World War I to the Germans. Uh, it was a peasant state. They still had peasants, even though it was outlawed. It was a fairly backward economy, a fairly backward, uh, uh, technologically speaking, civilization. And once the communists took over in Russia, they did set things right in terms of providing a mission for the people, getting that government's act together, and really accelerating technology. You have to remember, in, in say, 1930, uh, even in 19, yeah, let's say 1930, maybe, maybe 1920, Russia's still mostly a peasant state, wildly behind everybody technologically. Their military was wildly behind. It's why they lost to the Japanese. It's why they lost to the Germans uh, in World War One. That's why they were losing. They were way behind. That's not, say, 1920, 1930. By 1945, they were one of the major victors of World War II. That's only 20 years. And 10 years after that, they put a the first satellite in space called Sputnik. I'm sorry. By 1955, they put Sputnik in space. They were beating the United States in technology within 40 years of being a peasant society. So, yes, platypus, sorry for the long answer, everybody, but that's what I do here which is why we're never going to even get through this presentation. But 
uh, in certain circumstances, with the energy of the people backing a government policy, yes, communism can produce some fairly significant results. By the way, it doesn't hurt when you have Joseph Stalin with an iron fist smashing everybody's heads in to make sure that they do what he wants them to do, which was Mao Zedong's role in China. So a very forceful, popular leader uh, and a state apparatus that forces the issue and a group of people that want to do it. Because remember, you can have a dictator uh, who's going to run around and smash everybody in the head if they don't do what he says. But if that group of people doesn't like him uh, or it's a non-cohesive society, they're not going to get the work done. Humans are awesome at getting out of work. So even under threat of death, people are not going to work that hard. To advance a society, you really have to have several elements in place, and especially if it's going to be a communist experimental society. Hope that helps. Uh, uh, platyp- oh, you moved the, the thing. Okay. I'm trying. Well, okay, I'll try. Okay, and let's see. Uh, then Hokiebetic21 says off topic wine question. Shall I wait for later? Yes, please do. Plus, you put the, the, the screen. is I can't read the comments, actually. Oh, wait for... Okay, I see now. Uh, Billy Bob Hobnob says, nothing works in the long scheme of things. That's true, Billy Bob Hobnob. In fact, some would argue that capitalism is not working in the long term. Although, it's still doing slightly better than communism, uh, going head to head. <laughs> uh, let's see. Um, and Mr. Gaming Platypus follows up. Okay, about the technology, do you feel that their leaps were, do- were due... More towards communism due to communism or more towards scientists that were taken at the end of World War II and information sharing. Uh, a little bit of both, but um, uh, don't make no bones about it, Platypus. Um, before the Russians picked up a bunch of German scientists after World War II, which the United States did as well, uh, Russia had already won World War II. So, no, I don't think that... Um, Getting German scientists in some of the spoils of war from World War II certainly helped the Russians slash Soviets become a little bit better yet. Uh, But they had already gotten there. The the technological advances that were made by Stalin in terms of military technologies, uh, communications technologies, and a lot of other things were done prior to and during World War II, not after. Again, they, had, they already had built themselves up to be able to compete and ultimately defeat the Nazis uh, on the Eastern Front. So, yeah, they were pretty far ahead, or at least had caught up anyway. But now we're talking Russian history, and I'd love to do a whole lecture about Russia. Uh, but comparisons have to be made since we're talking about the Chinese experience. So the Chinese experience, uh, oh, by the way, uh, uh, the collectivization and indust- forced industrialization of Soviet Union was no picnic for everybody, by the way. Tons of people died there, too. Uh, Tons of people were in prison, uh, sent to Gulag, uh, killed by Stalin. Uh, Millions of people died there, too. No picnic. However, the collective whole of the society under Stalin's leadership did push them forward. In Mao's case, not so much. And now they're going to offend some Chinese people, but I think they've, they've come to grips with this, knowing their own history, that everybody loved Mao Zedong, like, I guess, people liked Stalin in Russia, Uh, And everybody wanted to do this communist thing, and he did unify the country and help it stand up. But their experiment just didn't work out as well. In fact, it didn't work out at all. Some actually credit Mao Zedong as one of the uh, uh, deadliest dictators on planet Earth, even though Chinese people would never say he was a dictator. But outsiders would say, well, he was a dictator because he was this communist guy who ultimately had all power 
and under his watch, literally tens of millions of Chinese people died because of failed policies, not because he had them killed in gulag camps. So the great leap forward, China's attempt to do what the Soviet Union did, didn't work out so much. In fact, didn't work at all. However, they learned from their mistakes and there were voices inside of China. By the way, this is also quickly forgotten. There were lots of people in China during the Civil War and before the Civil War and even after the Civil War that said China should become a democracy and China should be capitalist. So there are voices inside of China, even during all this, that are like, well, yeah, I guess we can dabble with this communism thing. And obviously Mao and his crew have the energy and have the leadership, but I think we should do something else. So when the, uh, the great leap forward economic and industrialization policies weren't working fast enough or outright failing in many cases, there were, it was dissent from the inside. And there were some Chinese leaders, uh, Dean Xiaoping is one of them, the main one I'm going to talk about, who were saying, hey, we should try a different path uh, to unify, uh, reunify his uh, power base uh, and to show leadership and to squash any would-be contenders for power, Mao Zedong and his crew then initiated the Cultural Revolution. And so, again, the very easy bait-and-switch game that political leaders do when their stuff fails. Well, don't talk about that. Do something else real quick. And so <laughs> the Cultural Revolution was a cover-up of past mistakes and a unifier of Chinese culture by purging out everything that's not ch purely Chinese. And if you don't know about the Cultural Revolution, go look it up. Everybody had these little things called Mao's Little Red Book of, I guess, poetry and citations and things from the great leader Mao that you should do to be a good Chinese person. Uh, and the purges, including getting rid of all things that weren't historically Chinese, getting rid of musical instruments, foreign languages, institutes of learning, uh, textbooks, uh, poetry, uh, anything that wasn't purely Chinese culture, you're whipping people into what we call a nationalist frenzy to be proud of China, 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 for let's make China great again. Ringing any bells? Let's make our country great again. Purge out all the foreign stuff because once we get all the foreign stuff out and everybody's on board for the program, then China be great again. Again, it's funny how history just keeps repeating itself, isn't it? Does any of this sound familiar? Just replace the word USA or America with the word China. So that was the Cultural Revolution in which purges occurred of all things foreign and political uh, dissenters uh, and any potential power struggles within the Communist Party or within China, period. So purge out all your political enemies under this guise of unifying the country under a nationalist banner. Uh, I always like to call him Chairman Meow. I can't remember where I found this political propaganda poster, but I just love it. Okay. Uh, and Mao, you have to remember, Mao is so popular that people want to believe in him. They want to believe in his policies. And, you know, at that point, I don't know, probably 750,000 or, um, I'm sorry, 750 million, uh, upwards to a billion Chinese people were alive at that time. So you're talking about a big population who were working hard and they do believe in the mission and they want their country to be great again. And, uh, but they're struggling and, they're, and, and the communism is just not working out. But people love Mao because he's, a, he's the George Washington and Thomas Jefferson uh, and uh, uh, Hamilton of his country wrapped up into one. He's the savior. 
he's the good guy. And so everybody kind of knows the policies aren't working, but nobody wants to tell Uncle Mao or Grandpa Mao or whatever, you know, nickname you want to give him because he was the good guy. He's our great leader who was great leading um, during the revolution, but not so much now. So you actually have to wait until Mao Zedong kicks the bucket in 1976. He was already starting to be sidelined, but he had powerful political players around him that kept him propped up. You might have heard of the Gang of Four. So the society respected Uncle Mao so much that they didn't want to change, and then he finally died. They're like, okay. Okay, now we can start to change the, the, this the communist, attempt at communist uh, uh, command economy that they were trying to do. Uh, and the guy who had said from the get-go, hey, I don't dig this communism thing. We should do that capitalist thing that all the other rich countries are doing. That guy's name was Deng Xiaoping. And if you really want to credit China for being rich today... You don't look at Mao so much as you look at Deng. Uh, and again, I think a lot of Chinese people already have come to this conclusion too. But again, it's like saying, well, George Washington was great. He, oh, but, yeah, but, but Thomas Jefferson was better. No one's even going to say that. They're just going to be like, well, Chairman Mao did his thing, but Deng is when things really start to take off for China when we're talking about the modern era. 1976, remember that year? was when the United States was 200 years old. China is still kind of struggling, still behind, not a world power player, but not by stretch of the imagination, still kind of a chaotic economy, not worth a whole lot in terms of GDP and not even exporting very much. So it's when Deng takes over and enacts capitalist reform. You heard that right, capitalist economic reform in the 70s. He's the one that said, hey, we should do what China does best. We make stuff and we make tons of stuff. In fact, for most of the history of our great country, we have exported stuff and made bank. We used to export silk and tea and, and porcelain and art and everything. We used, to, we used to sell everything to the world. Let's do that again. And so that it's not to the late 70s that that actually starts to take off. They start to retool their economy towards an export-led economy. By the way, under a communist economy, um, there's this mythology of being self-sufficient. By the way, it's a mythology the United States under the Trump administration currently has. It's a mythology that Great Britain has when it voted itself out of the uh, uh, European Union. The mythology is that we're a great country. We don't need anybody. We'll make every single thing we want here at home. We don't need anyone. It will be great because we have all the jobs and all the stuff and all everything's right here. That's nice, but I call that a mythology because I'm not sure that's ever been the case. Hell, you could go back to 10,000 B.C. Uh, and city-states in, in uh, Mesopotamia, uh, in the Fertile Crescent, we're interacting and trading with each other. No, no human is an island, and nary has a country ever been an island either. Unless you're an island country, I guess, like Ireland. But <laughs> I'm belaboring the point. International interaction and trade have been part and parcel of the whole human experience for pretty much the human experience. But there's this mythology that you, can, if you do it all yourself, you have 100% self-sufficiently self sufficiency, self-reliance, and your country can be the greatest because you don't need anything else and you don't have to do anything else with the rest of the world. Eh, that's what the communists always want to do. 
Uh, North Korea is a classic point of one country that's done it successfully. I mean, failed at it horrifically because they are isolated and they produce everything themselves and they're starving to death. So Russia, uh, under Soviet Union times, wanted to be self-sufficient. And China was really pushing to be self-sufficient. Make stuff here that we consume here. But it, it's clunky. It, it, it just doesn't work out as easily it may seem, even under a command economy. So in 76, when China got back to the good old days of what it was good at, which is exporting the living hell out of everything and raking in the international dollars that then you use to invest in your economy to make it better. You use to invest in your military to make it better. You use that money to invest in your road systems and your educational systems to make them better. That's their competitive advantage. They have always been the workshop of the world producing tons of goods and services. And again, that's what they started doing again in the late 70s. So we're still not that far in the past. That's when they started doing it. They were still a no-nothing, not even a third or fourth tier world power back in the 1970s. Look how far they're getting ready to come very quickly, though. Up to uh, the 80s, they're going through this in the late 70s. All the way through the 80s, they're starting to rebuild that economy, that export-driven economy. Uh, and there are still some bumps along the way. The Communist Party, again, is still the party in charge, uh, in charge of what the economy is doing. And by and large, people are pretty... I won't say happy. I don't know people uh, living in China in the 1980s, but they were okay with the political system. It's obviously, it's a one-party state. The Communist Party makes all the decisions for the people, but the people were busy, so they weren't terribly uh, distraught that they weren't living in a democracy. However, in 1989, a whole ton of students, and this is going back to uh, my uh, Mr. Gaming Platypus's question. By 1989, as the economy was starting to be incorporated into the global trade network, and again, communications were evolving too. I know you guys are all young, so you don't remember this. Uh, but back in the 70s, we had this thing called TV. That was about it. <laughs> so you could see stuff happening around the world on a handful of channels. But communications really take off in the 70s and 80s too. So the world becomes more connected with information. Not even internet yet. More communications, more interactions. People can see what's going on in other places. And people in China, particularly younger people, see what's going on in the rest of the world in terms of how far behind their country is politically as well as economically. Yeah, do you have a question? Oh, okay. I'll take a break to answer some questions. Okay. Um, uh, Billy Bob Hobnob says, uh, Russia had good technology, but they never got the hang of consumer goods like China has. Yeah, and Russia never got the hang of consumer goods like the United States did during the Cold War, which is why Russia lost the Cold War. <laughs> Good point, Billy Bob. Uh, Hokey Medic says, in his defense... Oh, see, it's got moved again. Uh, in his defense, President Trump would never hand out little red books. <laughs> they would be huge. They would be a huge red book, my friends. I don't know why, when I try to do Trump, I kind of go into Bobby Kennedy. I don't even know... <laughs> Huge. It's the huge thing. Um, <laughs> and Mr. Gaming Platypus back on a point saying, how did communist China view other communist countries such as East Germany or countries that CCCP founded slash started? Uh, they had, I'm glad you asked that, Mr. Platypus, um, because this is also a often overlooked fact, true fact, 
um, not a fake fact, true fact, of the Cold War and the relationship between China and Russia. Uh, a lot of folks in the United States, maybe Europe as well, uh, believed, politicians, presidents even, believed that uh, the Cold War was all about the capitalist democracies fighting against the communist countries. It was a battle of ideologies for the soul of planet Earth, right? And many thinkers and politicians and presidents uh, believe that when China became communist, Soviet Union was already communist, everybody just thought, obviously, they're in this huge love fest. All the communists are on their team, and they all love each other. Not so. Uh, China chafed under Soviet Union uh, um, overbearing leadership in about the first five years and kicked them out. So there was never... China went its own way, in other words, Mr. Platypus. China was focusing on China, much the same way it's doing it right this second. And China, tangentially, on paper, was allies of the Soviet Union, but really they didn't want to have a whole lot to do with them. Uh, and so they didn't think that much at all about Eastern Europe. China was really focused on China. They had diplomatic relations, don't get me wrong. And they probably toured the plants and the facilities and all the other communist countries to see how they were doing things. But there was not a whole lot of love lost between Soviet Empire and China to the point that even historians and Cold War pundits were shocked to find out how much they hated each other during the Cold War because a lot of that stuff didn't come out until the Soviet Union collapsed and a lot more information became readily available. So my answer to you is not much. They, they, they knew what was going on in the rest of the communist world, but China was has been, is, and will be focused on China. That's what they do. Again, everybody would say, well, that's what every country does. Yeah, China's really good at it right now. They're in the zone right now. So they weren't taking a lot of tips from a lot of other places. Uh, let's see. Uh, Billy Bob Havanov says, depends on how big your country is. Did the Mongols have to trade when they ruled 25% of the world? Yeah. Uh, the Mo uh, uh, I dispute your hypothesis, Billy Bob Havanov. Because, indeed, one of the things that the Mongol Empire solidified and one of its most important features was that it cemented trade ties between East and West. Uh, it was said that a... What's that? Okay, I'm trying to read them as fast as I can. Uh, it was said that during the height of the Mongol Empire, which spanned from uh, today's China and Mongolia all the way to Eastern Europe uh, and Baghdad and Egypt... Uh, and it was said that a virgin with a pot of gold on her head could walk from one side of the Mongol Empire to the other without ever being molested once. Uh, and that means they secured trade and basically a police force that was reinforcing the trade. This was a safe place. Why do you want a safe place? To encourage trade. If you have bandits uh, throughout your empire robbing people, it breaks down your economy. It hurts your economy. So the Mongols weren't any fools either. They were badass warriors. Don't get me wrong, Hobnob. But oh, I'm sorry, Billy Bob. But the um, trade was one of the most effective and important things that they did. They brought they brought international trade to its height at that time. At, to its height. It was the first time ever that people were openly trading between Baghdad, Beijing, and, hell, I don't know, Moscow and beyond. That was a first. So, kind of a big deal. Okay, um, 
Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, back to Mr. Platypus. Uh, Aftershock kind of confused me on the scope and purpose of the PLA. Is it more of a National Guard or they like the actual military? They seem to live more like a sort of reservist force within the apartments. I think it's all the above, Mr. Gaming. Uh, the PLA is the People's Liberation Army. So it is the army, but just like the United States has an army, they have different divisions of it too. So I think the PLA may be the umbrella, maybe the kind of thing that covers the PLA probably as an army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, I think, and a National Guard. Uh, but the PLA, as featured in Aftershock, was straight up the army. You got to remember, you were looking at the army during the Cultural Revolution, during the 60s. Uh, when was that set? I can't remember what year that Aftershock started. 60s or 70s. The army has always been up front and, and in the society of, of communist China. They are, I won't say the enforcers, they're the organizers and the enforcers and the workers. Communism is hard for us to understand because in our world, people just do what they want to do. And if you want to join the army, go join the army. But in a communist world, especially one that's early forming up as these uh, first decades of China's modern history, everybody's doing everything. So the, 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 the People's Liberation Army, yeah, it fought during the war and it was the national defense. But when they weren't at war, it's still active and it's out there doing stuffing and helping with farming projects and damming projects and civilian patrol and policing. And it, it's a little hard for us to get because it's a very different place. Uh, but back to... Um, 1976 is when the earthquake happened, which is such a, that movie is such a perfect movie to understand China because now you know as well, probably from lecture or what I just said earlier, 1976 is one of the biggest, most important years of Chinese history because this huge earthquake occurred and Mao Zedong died the same year. And there was a third thing, I think a third, a major military commander also died and things go in threes uh, for Chinese kind of, mythology belief system and so there was three huge things that happened that year and one could say that the huge earthquake the Tianshan earthquake that occurred set into motion completely coincidentally but a huge earthquake happened at that exact moment in Chinese history that was the start of the earthquake that was the Chinese real economic revolution to, for them to become the rich country they are today but that's what I'm trying to get to so let me get back to that right now um in 1989, a bunch of students thought that their country, their country, China, was heading the same direction as, say, Soviet Union. Because if you ever asked yourself, why did the Tiananmen Square massacre happen in 1989? Because the Soviet Union was imploding in 1989. And as fate would have it, Mikhail Gorbachev, the then Soviet premier of Soviet Union, was visiting Beijing. And this was misinterpreted by a bunch of young people uh, and maybe scholars as that Mikhail Gorbachev was coming to China to consult with Deng about how China was going to change and become a capitalist free market democracy because maybe that's the way Russia was going. There was confusion. He just happened to be doing a state-to-state -state visit, but it was misinterpreted by people who thought it was going to be that China was changing and going to become a democracy more like the West, because that's what the Soviet Union was doing. So, uh, uh, but that was not going to be the case. Uh, the uh, Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, has uh, no intentions on uh, relinquishing its power, even though it wasn't really being communist anymore. It was only communist in name, but they had the political power, 
And my friends, they have kept it right up to today. In fact, they're getting stronger by the minute in today's world. So China is what we call a one-party state. It's not a dictatorship, although Xi Jinping is getting close, uh, because it's not about a single person being in charge of everything. It's about a party that's in charge of everything. Uh, when you have more than one political party, now you're getting into something like a democracy where people get to choose between sides. But in China, they have no choice. There is a party. The party decides all things. Okay? Uh, and when the, upper, when the Democratic-inspired uh, 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 student protest cropped up, it was met with brutal force by the Chinese military. And Deng Xiaoping basically said, yeah, we're trying to change China. Everybody just relax, but we ain't changing that much. We're not going down that road. We're not going to lose our power here at the top. So they brutally suppressed it. And again, I talked about communications. Now we're in the late 80s in an era of telecommunications worldwide. People see this. I think it's when MTV starts. Actually, MTV started in the 80s. So Again, communications are important to understand the evolution of communications because had Tiananmen Square happened in 1960, no one would have known about it. No one would have known about it. It happened in 1989, just as China was starting to get back into the international game, starting to interact more with the world, certainly economically, and starting to politically. And then this was a huge stain, uh, a big egg on their face that the world got to see them punitively smash and firehose a bunch of kids uh, who built a toilet paper roll Statue of Liberty in Red Square. So that was kind of a big deal. And there's one thing you need to understand that China definitely hates. It's embarrassment. China does not like to be embarrassed. Uh, so it put the further clamps down on any future movements of things of that nature. And it restrained itself more than it ordinarily would. China in 1989 and Tiananmen Square Massacre certainly restrained itself much more than it would in today's Xi Jinping world. If another Tiananmen Square protest occurs, I hate to say I know everything, but Xi Jinping will not play. And there won't be 20 students there before he'd send up the troops and the tanks to run them all over. They do not like to be embarrassed. They don't like talk back from the people. They're making their country rich, and they're saying, hey, everybody's getting rich. Sit down and shut the hell up. Our country's getting better. Get on board. And by and large, most Chinese people are on board with that, by the way. So Tiananmen Square uh, is the first kind of big thing that's... Eh. And this is at the point, I think, 1989, 1990 is when everything just starts going right. So talked about the period of humiliation, 1758 up to 1949 talked about the failed uh, Great Leap Forward, talked about the uh, icky and kind of failed cultural revolution. Uh, and then we, uh, we got this kind of stained on the uh, shirt of the Tiananmen Square Massacre. Now you can draw a line in the sand. This is when China starts to become the rich China that you know today. 1990s, I don't even have any highlight bullet points for you besides things go haywire in the economy. They start producing tons of stuff. It is back to the good old days of the height of the greatest Chinese empires. They economically liberalize. They start letting people kind of start their own businesses. The state kind of steps back. The state still controls a lot of industries. Don't get me wrong. Like the big industries, like the coal plants and the, and the, and the car plants. and the, the state is still running the show in terms of big industry, 
but they start to allow for private investment. They start to let people work as much as they want to do. They start to tell people, hey, you know what? If you want to open up a little restaurant or diner in your town, go ahead and do it. Oh, you want to start a little brick-making facility in your backyard? Go ahead and do it. And this just unleashes a billion Chinese people's potential dreams to work harder, make more. Work harder, make more. Work harder, make more. And a billion Chinese people are all about making more. It is amazing to me that no one ever draws the parallels that the Chinese are, I think, the closest thing to the Americans in terms of we are very money-driven. And we will work, if, we, if we're going to get paid more, if we work harder, we work harder. I mean, there's no mistake why the Americans have some of the longest work weeks, some of the highest productivity, and some of the highest salaries. It's one of the richest countries on planet Earth. Let people work more and make more, and buddy, they will work. Well, the ones that want to work will work, and they will work way more. And this is part of this liberalization of the economy. Slight liberalization, not wide open. But this liberalization of the economy is what lets loose this explosion. And for virtually all of the 1990s and even into the 2000s, China was uh, recording double-digit economic growth. What I mean by that is we have this thing called GDP, right? Everybody knows GDP, gross domestic product. And there's lots of other measures. It doesn't really matter which one you look at. Double-digit growth means that every year your economy is more than 10% bigger than it was last year. So, for instance, economic growth rates in America are hover. Right now, they're hovering low. But say they hover between 2 to 4, maybe 5% in a good year. What that means is if we say economic growth last year was 3%, uh, that means the economy right this second, all the goods and all the services, all the value of everything from 2019 – now in 2020, multiply that by 3%, it's 3% bigger. Add that to the top. So it's 3%. If our economic growth rate is 3%, then we're 3% bigger on everything this year. And if our growth rate this year is 5%, then by this time next year, the economy will be 5% bigger than it was in 2020. That makes sense? Big countries, well, poor countries don't have a whole lot of economic growth, so their numbers are low and they don't grow that much. But even giant big countries like the United States routinely only get three, four, five, maybe, maybe in a crazy great year, 6% growth rate. And that's because the United States is so big. The UK economy is so big. France's and Germany's economy is so big. It takes a lot more money and a lot more goods and services sold and produced to add 3% to a trillion dollars. Does that make sense? If you start low, if you only have a billion dollars in your economy and you have 10% growth rate, well, you're adding 10% to that billion. That's pretty good. If you're already a trillion dollar economy, man, that's a lot of money you got to add on to have a 10% growth rate. So the bigger your economy is, usually the lower the growth rate number is. It's just straight up economics is how the world works. China was starting at a lower base and it exploded economically. And it was having double-digit growth rates. Every year, the economy was 10, 11, 12, 15% bigger than it was last year. By the way, those are growth rates that any politician on planet Earth would donate a testicle to get in their economy. And I'm not just picking on men. Women would donate someone else's testicle to have that in their economy. It's a big deal. Double-digit growth. And China sustains that for virtually the entire 90s. Every year, 10% bigger than you were before. That is crazy 
hot, blistering hot growth rate. Now, I'm going to just start firing off a bunch of stuff, too, to get us caught up to the modern era. Because of it getting back on track, now they've had since 1949 with a singular political system of stability. The country's united, and now the economy's humming, and now they start getting their political house in order for the worldwide market. Meaning that they are at the point of saying, hey, remember when all these foreign powers used to control us and screw us over? It's reckoning time. So in 1997, Hong Kong, which had been torn away from China by the United Kingdom, was returned back to China. By the way, you probably heard a little bit about Hong Kong in the last several months slash years. And that's because when China uh, took possession, repossession of Hong Kong, uh, the original uh, referendum on it, the agreement between the Brits and the Chinese was that Hong Kong has been under the wing of Great Britain, a capitalist economy and a democracy. So, hey, China, I'm speaking on behalf of Great Britain. Great Britain says, chip, chip, perio, old chaps, uh, we'll give you back Hong Kong as long as you promise to allow them to maintain their autonomy and their democratic systems for a period of, I don't know, actually, I don't know, I want to say 100 years. And that became known as one state, uh, two systems, two systems, one state. So Hong Kong reverted back to China, but they maintained their democratic system, even though they were in one state called China. Does that make sense? Well, as you know, China is now giving up on that. And we're now getting to China being much more powerful and assertive in today's world. Uh, and there were protests back in 2014 called the Umbrella Movement. And then you might have heard any passing reference in the last two years, General Hong Kong writing, uh, 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 protesting. And this is because in 2014, even before that, uh, but in 2014 and again in 2019, Legislation was introduced into Hong Kong, which was going to strip it of some of its democratic autonomy. Just little pieces. China was taking little pieces at a time and people were getting furious saying, no, no, you said one state, two systems. You said one state, two systems. And this is what's been going on in Hong Kong since 1997. But it's pretty much over now because China said, we're, we're tired of this. We're tired of that thing we agreed to. We're not doing it anymore. Hong Kong is now back in the Chinese fold. Um, I'm sorry, there's a question? Okay, in uh, uh, just two years after that, a little place called Macau, not that little, but a cool place to go gambling, by the way. Uh, Macau was another city-state that had been taken over by the Portuguese, I believe. Portuguese or the Dutch? I think the Portuguese uh, in southeastern China. And that was returned back to China proper. Uh, into the year 2000, the United States of America established favored nation trading status with China and supported its entry into the WTO. By the way, I made this slide in, in like 2005. It is interesting that Donald Trump, the uh, U.S. President Donald Trump, when he was running for office and ever since he's been in office, has routinely referenced this period as a huge mistake for the United States. And he has a lot of people who agree with him on that. Who's, uh, the United States theory was at the time, well, if we allow China into the League of Nations, if we allow them to enter into all the clubs that all of us other uh, capitalist democracies are in, then they'll eventually probably start becoming more like us. Uh, and 
everybody at the time thought that. I might have thought it too. I can't remember back 20 years ago, but almost all world watchers were like, hey, yeah, China will get China's already in the UN. It'll get in the WTO. It'll get into some of these other trade blocks and trade groups, and everyone will live happily ever after. Donald Trump and his like were saying, hell no. These guys are just going to take advantage of the system and game the system for their advantage. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but yeah, Donald Trump and them were right. And it's one of the reasons why you're having such trade friction with China and lots of other countries in the world, not just the United States, in today's world. is because China was encouraged to enter these uh, organizations, everyone thinking they'd behave one way, and instead they just behaved China first, make China great again, take advantage of these uh, organizations we're in in order to game the system to our advantage as much as possible including technological transfers from companies worldwide. Anytime you want to set up a company in China, uh, they made you sign a, a disclosure agreement that you had to disclose all of the technologies you were using in your Apple iPhone plant or your Nike shoe plant. You had to give China all of the technology or something like that. Uh, and uh, Donald Trump and others have said that they've manipulated currency to give, to give themselves a better favorable uh, trade relationship. So if you devalue your currency, if you keep your money cheap, that means it's easier to come buy iPhones from your country because they'll cost less money. And so people will want to buy more stuff from your country because your money is not worth as much, which means I can get more bang for my U.S. dollar in China because your money's worth less than mine. So people have accused China of artificially depressing the value of its currency, the yuan, uh, and a lot of other, and not not doing quid pro quo. So people who are accusing China of bad trade deals are saying, well, then China did all that. And then they also would say, hey, we'll sell you a billion tons of steel uh, if you buy a billion tons of cars and that China would do its side of the deal, but then not buy stuff back. This is what, again, uh, the Trump administration and other thinkers like them have said for years of, hey, these guys aren't, they're not playing by the rules of the club that we let them in. I'm sorry, is there a comment I got to read? Okay. Uh, so, as I said, 1990s was pure on fire uh, economic growth for China. And then the 2000s, it really caught fire because now they start to catch up technologically on everything they were already behind, that they were still behind on. Now you're getting car technology transfers and microchip and computers and cell phones and 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 this is the birth of this place called Huawei, which you've also probably heard in the news. One, one of China, By the way, I love it that I've kept all my old presentations. These are news stories that I would have pulled the day I gave this lecture 20 years ago. Uh, and so Huawei Technologies blazes trail for Chinese firms in Africa. One of China's fledgling multinational companies. When I got this story, Huawei was a fledgling Chinese company. It's dominating the world now. I could stop right there. Just with that. I've been lecturing about China since before there was Huawei, and now Huawei dominates the world for 5G. So much so it's a national security risk uh, to some countries. That's just the last 20 years, my friends. Just the last 20. So China is completely awake. China is back. Uh, and I now I'm finishing off with saying China has, and some, uh, some are still saying will, resume its rightful place as a major leader of Asia and a world power. I think it already has. Right? It already has. Yes. Oh, look at the chat room. Okay. 
<laughs> uh, Yakov's back. Welcome back, Yakov, who says, work ethic in Japan makes the average American looking as lazy as a dog chilling under the sun. I love that. Uh, let's see. Uh, LOL, 2005, you said that was wishful thinking. What what I say in uh, Sloot 13, what did I say in 2005 was wishful thinking? I can't remember what I said in 2005. I'm not that good. My memory's not that good. Uh, Yakov says DJT has a point, but back when there wasn't a Republican administration as well, uh, the, uh, to credit, um, Donald Trump, the latter years of the Obama administration, they were starting to sour on Chinese relations as well. They were seeing that they had put forward good faith in China. And by the way, Obama didn't let, um, or didn't encourage China to join the WTO. That was under George Bush. So the Bush administration and then into the Obama administration, it, people started to sour on the idea that China was going to be an equal partner or play by the same rules. And so it, the tide was turning and Donald Trump came along at the exact right time to be a populist nationalist who was saying, rah, 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 make America great again and we should stop doing everything with China. I mean, we can make fun of the guy for a, a variety of reasons. He is quite hilarious. I'm talking about Donald Trump. But his timing was pretty on point, and his message, especially when it came to China, really resonated with Americans, including some other politicians who were like, yeah, we kind of have not been doing that well trading with China for a very long time now. Uh, and uh, let's see. Um, Billy Bob Hobnob says gaming the system is exactly what makes them like us. Also agreed, Billy Bob. Totally agreed. It's funny that Somebody else that beat you at the game you created, you hate them and you're like, you're cheating. And it's like, but they're doing the same thing you did. They're just doing it slightly better now. Uh, our first too. Oh, and Woogie, Woogie Boogie subscribed with Prime, our first subscriber. Yay. And that, I don't even know what that means. But Woogie Boogie, if you hit me up, I'll get you one of these. I'll mail you one of these as our first subscriber. In fact, I guess you could just... Give Katie your address somehow. I don't know. I'm not trying to disclose information in a public forum, but I'll mail you one of those sticker heads if you like. Maybe two or three. Uh, and so to one uh, uh, K, one C, K, three R, should we be concerned about China, but also some other countries as well, like Brazil, buying up agricultural land in the United States? Um, no, I don't worry about countries buying assets in other countries. That's also been happening forever, at least in the modern world. And, the, and I will clue you into my age. I remember it was um, it was totally racist, uh, but widespread usage in the 80s was um, targeted against Japan. So remember, China's still out of the picture in the 80s. It's still getting its feet. Japan was the powerhouse that America was buying all of its electronics from and TVs and cars. That's when cars started to make it into the American market and good cars like Toyota cars, which would last for like 500 years. And so there was a bit of a racist backlash of they're taking our jobs, but also um, if, if you drive, a, if you drive a Honda, you should move to Japan or you, you're a, you, you hate America. If you drive Toyota, I mean, I remember this shit. It, it was quite vivid to me. Cause it's like, I remember being a kid going, why it's just a car. I don't care. Uh, but yeah, the same, and the Japanese were get, were so rich at the time, too, by the way. They bought up uh, 30 Rockefeller Plaza, I think. I think the Japanese had bought 
not the government, but big firms had bought up stuff. The Saudi, Saudi nationalists buy property in, in hotels in Vegas all the time. Rich people everywhere, rich business entities everywhere buy stuff as an investment. So I'm not terribly worried because I've seen this story before and it, it continues to happen. And by the way, American companies buy assets in other countries too. The Chinese don't allow it so much which is why people say it's unfair, but it's not anything to worry about. Worst case scenario, the the U.S. and China were to get into a war, the U.S. would just confiscate all Chinese property in America. So that's not something that is terribly disconcerting to me. Never has been. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Um, um, Should I answer more questions? Because I'm already getting way behind. I'll try to answer all the rest. Hope that hap- uh, helped uh, 1K, 1CK3R. Uh, Sloot13 says that China was going to become more like the rest of us by letting them join WTO. So I did say that. Or oh, I said it was wishful thinking. Sloot13, if you're telling me that over a decade ago, I said that it was wishful thinking that China would behave like us if they join, if we let them join a WTO, I will take that. I will take that all day long as pretending to be right. I hope you're right, Sloot13. Uh, because... My instincts about the way that I've lectured and the way I think about the world, I do kind of remember those. I don't ever remember things specifically, I said, but that was my instinct even 20 years ago. If memory serves, I'm like, yeah, I think China's going to do what China wants to do. And China routinely, throughout all of its history, looks out after China. Make China great again. That's, that's it. Again, I'm going to continue to draw parallels between the United States of America and China. Make China great again. Make America great again. Our country's greatest. No, our country's great. Like, sure, sure. The only difference between America and China is that there's four times as many people there and they're Chinese. That's pretty much the only difference. Uh, They work hard. They play hard. They want to make money. They want to make better lives for themselves and they do it. And that's what America does too. Uh, even though Salute says, don't ask me to pull up my class notes. I didn't take any. Shocking. But I'll bet you still got an A. Thank God. Yakob throws in that Huawei's founder is an ex-military guy in China. Such a record could probably never win over the Western market. Yeah, that's true. But man, is that dude rich now. Woo! Huawei me away. I take, I take stock in that any day. I wish I had smart enough to invest in that stuff. Okay, but I want to get through this lecture because I was actually going to try to get to the projecting power part. And here we are. We're already over an hour already. Okay, let's do this. Okay. Uh, Hokey Medic says, I heard some of the more wealthy Chinese people were buying vines from around the world and planting them in Western China. Any good wines coming out of China? Yep, sure are. Uh, look for uh, the Shanxi province, which is kind of almost dead center in the country uh, of China. It's just, it's it borders the Inner Mongolian province. Shanxi, C-H-A-A-N-X-I. They are one of the kind of premier wine regions of China, but they're not alone. The Shandong Peninsula is producing much stuff too. All the way across kind of a a northern fringe of China, vines are going in. China, you heard it here first, uh, will be the world's biggest wine market inside of one decade. China will be uh, the world's biggest wine producer inside of one decade. China will be the world's greatest exporter of wine inside of one decade. Yep, I said all three. China has a billion and a half people in it. A billion and a half people, a lot more expendable income. 
uh, who are refining themselves and doing things that rich people do everywhere else. And drinking wine is one of them. Can't wait to go visit the vines in Changchi. Uh, but to finish off our getting rich story, um, 2003, China puts a man in space, uh, only the third country to do that in human history. So we're starting to ramp up, been talking about the economy doing great. Now we're starting to politically get some assets back. Now culturally and technologically, we're getting China starting to rise in the world ranks. Uh, 2008 hosts the Olympics and completely annihilates the Olympics. So weeps the Olympics. First time that modern China has hosted the Olympics went off without a hitch and it was wonderful and everybody loved it and China won it. There you go. Uh, 2000, same year, actually, I think it was the month of the Olympics. They did the first spacewalk. I believe, again, only one of three countries to do that. Maybe only one of two. I can't remember if Russia ever did a spacewalk. Let's assume they did. Uh, and put all these things together, my friends, and you have a country whose national pride is swelling. I liken it to the way that the United States, uh, the Americans felt after World War II. After World War II, America was strong. America was vibrant. All the people came back from war. They were all happy. They all went and had sex with their wives. They all got uh, great mortgages on houses. Everybody was a winner in America. Everybody was doing better. Everybody had a house. Everybody had a, a chicken in every pot and a car. And there was getting richer. And our country's great. And we just beat Nazis. And America's the greatest country ever. And that's where China is right now. I get my, I get my blood pressure up to make a point. That's where China is right now. They're, oh, yeah, and America put a man on the moon. And look what China's doing right now. China will be the next country to put a man on the moon, a human on the moon, I should say. Uh, and the United States is actually trying to beat him back. So the United States can say, no, 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 we're still here. But China will beat the United States back on that. Uh, at the same time period I'm talking about, uh, millions, hundreds of millions of people pulled from poverty between 1981 and 2005, an estimated 600 million Chinese people who are below an international poverty line are now not in the poverty situation. The biggest movement upwards of that many people, as far as we know, in human recorded history. Again, we're talking about 25 to 30 years. And this is an old statistic. That's from 2005. It's more now. So what you have is, in China, a very proud nation after 200 years of humiliation and 30 or 40 years of failed economic policy finally getting its act together and storming back into its rightful place on the world stage. So much money being made now, uh, the hugest middle class on planet Earth into an area of conspicuous consumption. And I love the term conspicuous consumption because it brings us back to what I was talking about with wine. Conspicuous consumption is that you want to impress. You buy stuff and you show stuff and you have a car better than your neighbors because it's a status symbol. And we now have a billion and a half people in China. Not all of them are rich. There's still lots of poor people. It's because they have the biggest population in the world. But... They now have such a gigantic burgeoning middle class. They got more millionaires than any other country. They have more billionaires than any other country. They for certain will have the first trillionaire on planet Earth. I shouldn't say for certain, but likely they'll have the first trillionaire. Probably the Huawei guy. So this is a place where there's a lot of money that's being infused into it. And I think it's important to understand this because China now is at a place 
that it doesn't need the world as much as it used to back in the 80s. So remember back when I was talking like a half hour ago saying, oh yeah, well, the communists want to be self-sufficient and Mao uh, 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 Deng Xiaoping and others were like, no, 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 we should make money off the world and then we'll become self-sufficient. And by golly, they're getting there because when you have conspicuous consumption, what that means is you have a giant middle class, you have a consumer class. You have a class of people that are buying the products that they are themselves are making. That's why the United States got rich, by the way. That's why the United States won the Cold War. Uh, the Soviet Union was clunking around trying to, you know, make Volkswagens out of rutabagas. They, they, in a very dysfunctional system that was corrupt and nobody... It was every man for himself and nobody cared uh, at the same time because they were producing bombs and tanks and tractors and having people work in these inefficient factories. In America... People had a domestic economy. So people that worked at a clothes company could buy the clothes. People that worked at the car factory could buy that car. They were making enough money to buy the goods and services they themselves were producing. That is a domestic economy. It means you don't have to care if the world system collapses because you have a domestic self-contained economy. China has just reached that in the last 10 years. So now it's on cloud nine. It still exports tons of stuff. And yes, if the world economy were to shut down, yeah, China would be hurt. But they have a domestic economy now, much like the United States, which means it will keep going. It will keep going. Very few countries on earth have that. Very few. Most small countries can't have it by their very size. They can't produce everything. So you have a very unique circumstance where you are looking at the China and the United States as the two world powers for the coming decades slash centuries because they have huge economies huge populations, and they are internally satisfying their own economy and then making money on the side with external foreign stuff, if that makes any sense. And now that brings us to what I was going to talk about most of the time, which is with all of these other increases comes increasing military power. They now have made so much money over such a long period of time they have invested in themselves. They've invested in their roads, in their schools, in their education systems, in their social uh, welfare systems, uh, into uh, factories, into you name it, the solar power, into their space program, and of course into their military as well because they want to shore up uh, their land base and expand their power further afield so that they never suffer another period of humiliation. Remember, the period of humiliation and domination by foreign powers is still very fresh in the Chinese mind. It's something that they probably pisses them off every single day. Planners in the CCP, China's leadership, all they think about, not all they think about, they almost always are thinking about, though, self-defense, keeping people away, never getting humiliated again, keeping the people in line, not being embarrassed by their own people, not being embarrassed by foreign powers, not being taken advantage of by foreign powers. It, this is still fresh in their memory. They are not having it. They're not having any return to the past. And how do you do that? Beef up your military so that nobody can mess with you in the future. And that is indeed what they've been doing across the board. Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, they have the largest standing army on planet Earth. But even that's almost laughable because who the hell gets in land wars anymore? They are a nuclear a declared power. They have nuclear weapons. They now have the technology and the factories and the manpower to have the best soldiers, the best equipment, the best tanks, the best planes, 
Do they buy a lot of the stuff from other people? Sure they do. They're starting to make their own and make their own. They will continue to do back to self-sufficiency in ammunitions and defense stuff as well. With this increased power, their international reach is starting to swell. They are starting to get back into disputes about territories they have not thought about for hundreds of years. Why? Because now they have the power to follow through and to get the things they want in those other territories. It's a, there's a reason why there's friction on the India-China border right now. China's in a position to take back what it wants. It's now taken back Hong Kong. It said, we don't care what we agreed to. It's ours because we're military powerful and we're no, no one's going to do anything about it. China could tomorrow take back Taiwan. No doubt about it. They outnumber them far militarily superior to Taiwan. They've been holding their cards because, again, they don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to look like a bully. They don't want to look like they're forcibly taking back stuff. But they're getting very close to the point of saying, who cares? Who cares if we look like a bully? We can do anything we want to. We're powerful enough. And that pride and that reach is swelling further. Before I get to the military conflicts, uh, or imminent military conflicts and territorial tensions, part of this is China's plan to reestablish itself as the premier power of all Eurasia. And they're doing it very strategically. This thing is called the Belt and Road Initiative, a.k.a. the New Silk Road? A connection, uh, a, a corridor of trade, of, of goods and services between East and West, like never before since the Khan Empire? Yes, that's what they're shooting for. And again, this is not by threat of force. This is soft power. China has been making trade deals with all the countries you see lit up here. And what they're building is a global infrastructure development strategy. And this is fully embraced by the Xi Jinping government, who is also, by the way, he's absorbed all power to himself. He is now ruler for life. Uh, changed the Chinese constitution a few years back to make himself ruler for life so he can see out all of these plans and projects he's putting forward. And his main one is this development strategy, the Belt and Road uh, deal to invest in countries and international organizations, centerpiece of the Communist Party, uh, General Secretary Xi Jinping's foreign policy. Well, what I mean by developing stuff, it's not like, hey, let's have a trade pact. No, no, no. This is actually tangibles. So in the belt uh, economies, and it's funny that the Chinese call the belt economies are the actual roads. Physically, what we would call a road, they're saying that's the belt. And then the one road economies, that's actually sea routes. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know how they came up with the terminology. Maybe it's just a translation thing. But the Chinese are going to all those countries in purple and saying, hey, we're, we want to uh, have, I won't say free trade, but we want to start trade policies that open up trade between us and minimize tariffs, taxes, and uh, friction between trading all our goods and services with you all. We're also going to uh, uh, spend a bunch of money building roads, railroad networks, bridges, whatever it takes to connect us up physically on a road on the ground, we will do it. And if we won't do it outright, if you won't let us build a road to Hungary for you, we will lend you money. So some of these countries are like Kazakhstan could be like, oh, we don't got money to build 3,000 miles of a railroad. China says, that's cool. How about we lend you the money? We'll lend you the money. You can pay us back or, or just give us an advantageous trade relationship. The same is true with the orange countries, the one belt. 
I'm sorry, the one road, they're going around saying, hey, uh, Pakistan, and this is actually a real example, not a made up one, Pakistan, hey, we'll help develop out that major seaport you have down there that it's eh, a little rickety, it's behind the times, and it's not big enough, it's not developed enough to handle big seagoing cargo ships of today's world. Why don't we rebuild that for you? Let us rebuild. Hey, uh, 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 Ethiopia or Sudan, how about we lend you know, $5 billion uh, to build a railroad system that, that empties out uh, into the uh, the Gulf there. So it will help build the port facility. That's what they've been strategically doing now since 2013. And it actually started a little bit before that. But 2013 is when they said, oh, we have this grand plan now of cooking up all these economies with China at the center of them. Again, this is a soft power tactic. You could look at it like a Eurasian EU, I guess, or because it even includes Africa, like a Asian African EU, although it's not really an EU. The EU is a different beast altogether for reasons that you probably understand now in this class. So this is something quite novel and unique a trade block of sorts, but an investment strategy. And by the way, this is not talked about much yet, but China has already created an Asian investment bank, of which they're the main shareholder of, that lends money out okay, to, to countries to do projects. That's a bank. Banks work for money. It's not charity. So China is fast becoming the financial and economic and transportation and communications epicenter of Eurasia, Africa, <laughs> whatever you want to call this Pacific Indian Ocean beltway. Uh, and it's kind of a gigantic big deal. The Chinese think in terms of decades, not political cycles. In fact, the Chinese think in terms of centuries and decades, not years and political cycles. It's one of the reasons why they can do these great things and have these big initiatives and build the Three Gorges Dam. They don't have to ask the population what they want. They don't have to rely on people to vote them into office. They don't have to care if the whole population in China hates something. They're in charge. So they can afford to think strategically for, for a project that's going to take 50 years. They're like, yeah, we wouldn't even think about it unless it was going to take 50 years. Everything else is just like, whatever. Who cares? Where in America, everything's like, well, all we can think about is the next two years till the next election. All I can do is build stuff so my people will reelect me. All the political party can think about is a five-year plan that gets them reelected in five years. That's a very short-term way of thinking, and it's becoming increasingly hard for the United States to get ahead in the world when China does the long-term thinking so much better and has the patience to wait for it to come to fruition. Okay. Now, I said, already pointed out that the one road economies are, are the orange ones. That's actually water. <laughs> so wouldn't it be a one, one boat economy? No, that's not that. Well, if you've got a road on the water, if you have a road on the sea, what else do you kind of need? You need more military to exert control and power and safety over that road. Much the same way. Look how this lecture is coming all the way around. Much the same way I said that the uh, uh, Mongol Empire was so awesome for trade because it created safe passage on trade routes. China wants to do the same thing. And maybe for some other reasons, but China's saying, hey, we have this big initiative. We have to build some aircraft carriers. Huh. Think about that. Let me go back and look at the date on this. Uh, April 2014. 
Uh, U.S. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel. I always like Chuck Hagel. Visits uh, the Chinese aircraft carrier that was just recently launched, and that was uh, six years ago. Uh, and here's what it looked like. Here's some fun fact, though. Uh, just about a year ago, China commissioned its second aircraft carrier. I totally missed that. I say I gotta, I gotta do more podcasting. It's the only way I can keep up with what the hell's going on. Okay, so what's the big deal about aircraft carriers? Well, this little graph here is showing you. Number of aircraft carriers in operation worldwide as of December 2019. Wow, the United States has 11. <laughs> in fact, if you tally up the numbers there, you see that the United States has the same number of aircraft carriers as the rest of the entire world put together. Huh. Well, do you think China's going to stop at just two aircraft carriers? I mean, will two be enough to protect its seagoing and territorial integrity? and protect the shipping lanes for its One Belt, One Road initiative. Well, I love showing this because this never gets old. This is a graphic that is actually now something like 20 years old, but it still makes the point. This is a, a picture of all of the entire world's aircraft carriers. <laughs> You'll see the first two columns are the United States. Now, the, the first column actually there on the left is, um, I think that's, Heliopads and uh, a rapid uh, attack vessels uh, that can launch ships and, and helicopters. The middle column is true aircraft carrier that can launch jets and stuff. But this was the entire world's uh, stockpile of aircraft carriers uh, up till about 10 years ago because the Chinese ones aren't even on here yet. And by the way, the UK is four listed under their little column there in the lower right-hand corner. The UK's already retired two of those, maybe three. So, and we need to add two up for China. So for those that are worried about China's aircraft carrier superiority, please keep this chart in mind. The United States still possesses more of these particular types of equipment than all the rest of the world, including China, combined. Now, here's the bigger question. And maybe I should go, am I too far behind in comments? I should go do some comments. Let me do some comments about, and before we get to, why does want China want more aircraft carriers? What's so important about Chinese aircraft carriers? Yes. I, I'm trying to get back up to see what I missed. Oh, yeah, you well, I don't know how to get it. You moved the mouse, so I don't know what's going on. We're dealing with so many screens here. It's down here. Okay. Okay. But I'm trying to get back up to other comments. Oh, you paused it. Anyway, I see Cameron the Map God's in the house. Welcome, Cameron. It says South China Sea. Sorry I missed that, but I can't scroll back up now. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're talking about South China Sea. Hang on. I got a slide for that. Uh, Billy Bob said bribes are better than bombs. <laughs> uh, let's see. 1K says, I believe the Chinese a while back also tried to build a canal through Nicaragua to bypass the Panama Canal. One reason or the other, that project has not begun. You are correct, 1K. They are still working on that. The Chinese want to be the ones that fund another canal through so they can exert further control, further afield. They lend money to virtually any country in the world to do uh, any sort of projects that the Chinese can then say, well, you owe us a favor now. We lent you the money for that canal project, or we, meant, we lent you that money to build a stadium, or we lent you that money to build a railroad thing. Uh, you owe us that money back, but also you owe us a favor now. So again, that's soft power. And yes, the um, Nicaraguan canal is on again, off again. Last I heard, there was a crazy rich Chinese... Uh, businessman who was taking it on wanted to, wanted to be the one in charge of it, but I think it kind of fell through the cracks again. 
Billy Bob says China needs a world-class university system and an alternative to SWIFT. Uh, they're working on it, Billy Bob, for 100% sure. They're working on that right now, too. Cameron the Map God says, uh, I'm sorry, CPT, uh, Mer oh gosh, that's a tough one. Merdale? Merdale said, wouldn't their wolf warrior diplomacy actually prove otherwise that they aren't as patient as we thought they were? Uh, that is correct, CPD, Merdale. However, China was as patient as it was, uh, as it intended to be, I suppose, on the Hong Kong issue. And it's still, let's just call a spade a spade, it's still being patient with the Taiwan issue because, again, they could take Taiwan tomorrow. They don't want that. They don't want to look like a bully. So they're still restraining themselves a bit. But we don't know how much longer that restraint will, will stay in uh, touch because of the host of the issues I'm getting ready to get to, which are getting hotter as every day passes. Uh, Cameron the Map God says, didn't it buy the first aircraft carrier from Russia? It did. Towed it around, retrofitted it, and fixed it up. The second one, I believe, is completely homegrown. Uh, let's see. Uh, 1K says they're testing an alternative to SWIFT using digital money that handles uh, the settlement. Uh, uh, that's a good point, 1K. Uh, and I meant to say this earlier. With China becoming an epicenter of so much trade and action in the Eurasian African uh, uh, realm, you have to think that China's going to develop its entire own monetary system that other countries will sign on to. This is something that terrifies the United States, by the way. Right now, the United States dollar, the U.S. dollar, has been the world standard for as long as I've been alive. Uh, and it, that gives the United States some strategic advantages uh, in terms of its own currency manipulation and lots of other things. The lending and borrowing and moving of money um, the U.S. has some strategic advantages because everybody uses the U.S. dollar. I believe it's got to be coming soon that China says, a Belt and Road Initiative, Yuan's going to be the official currency. Uh, there's been, I've reported in classes before that there has been talk between China and Russia for at least a decade since I've been following it of moving, uh, creating even a gas and oil hydrocarbons kind of cartel between those countries and moving off the U.S. dollar and making a ruble or yuan-based system for that. Uh, so w with, with the things that are happening and the way it's evolving in this part of the world, you just have to accept that China will be leading new international institutions soon that do not use the U.S. dollar as their standard. And that's Bill's a bit of turbulence ahead for the United States. Part of the friction between the two great powers that I'm will hopefully get to by the end of this lecture. Oh, I'm actually doing pretty good. It's only been a it's been a mere hour and a half. Uh, let's see. Uh, Karen the Map God says aircraft carriers can help other countries with their humanitarian problems, like earthquake pro earthquake provides medical food and even electricity. That's a very kind way to think about it, Cameron the Map God. Uh, but what do what do powerful countries really want aircraft carriers for? What do China... What, kind of said it. Oh, I missed it. Where's it at? Bright purple. Oh, power projection. Woogie boogie. I'm sorry. Was it blocked out like that? I missed it. <laughs> uh, Hokey Medic also says China's real estate market has been booming in the past few years as more of their citizens become financially independent. How much control does the Chinese government have over their markets and do they stand the chance of having a bubble popping issue like the U.S.? Oh my gosh, of course. Uh, yeah, the China, China has a stock market now and China has a tighter uh, uh, 
realm or hold on their stock market and activities within China than the U.S. ever will. So will bubbles happen and get popped? Of course, that's the nature of stock market, period. Uh, however, China is in a better strategic situation in that it controls it can still controls the levers of so much power. So say if stocks the stock market starts reeling in the United States and a mass sell off starts to happen and crazy you know it, it, we're approaching you know Black Friday uh, 1929 and the United States all the government can do is say hey everybody chill out. China can physically go in and say nope stock market's closed. Stock market's closed and the, the, and the government has so much money. We'll buy back this and we'll buy back this. And by the way, it's the Chinese national bank you're using for all this. And it's sound and it's steady. So, yes, they will certainly have uh, uh, whole markets, whole industries, whole businesses that become overinflated in price and then crash and burn. Such is the nature of investment. Such is the nature of trading. Uh, but it's much more contained. I wouldn't say contained. It's got a bigger safety net than the U.S. market does. That's not to say it won't crash and burn sometime, but it has a bigger safety net. That makes sense? Okay. Let me get back over here because a Woogie Oogie already yeah. nailed it. Uh, why does any country want more aircraft carriers? What's so special about aircraft carriers? Aircraft carriers can project power to any part of planet Earth. Now, you may say that nuclear weapons can do that too, but they actually can't. Nuclear weapons can only blow up other parts of planet Earth. They do not project power. They can only threaten to destroy other parts of planet Earth. They cannot threaten to take over. They cannot threaten. They cannot show eminent force that would change someone's mind. Right? If you tell me, oh, North Korea is going to launch a nuclear weapon and, and blow up San Francisco. Ah, yeah. There's no way to prove that. There, there's nothing there. You either do it or you don't. And you've gained nothing at the end. Uh, if you, if China puts an aircraft carrier off the coast of San Francisco, okay, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Now you are showing us you have technological prowess and the intent and the backbone to push your power to another country's doorstep. That is real power. And you exert control over the area of water or waters that you're floating around in. Because with an aircraft carrier, you can have jets carrying nuclear weapons on it or conventional weapons on it or troops that are going to invade your country on it. So this is aircraft carriers are the height of projection of power in the world because you're basically taking part of your country and moving it around to threaten or otherwise intimidate or coerce or help another part of the planet. They are the penultimate of power projection because you're moving a little piece of your country over to another part of the world. It's exceptionally important, especially if you want to control the waters or prove that you control the waters around a certain territory, say, I don't know, namely your own. And this is when we get into, let's talk about China's island chain defense strategy. This is why China is just now getting warmed up making aircraft carriers. You heard it here first. China will not rest until it has more aircraft carriers than the United States. Let me say it again. China will not stop making aircraft carriers until it has more aircraft carriers than the United States. Maybe twice as many. The next arms race is going to be for space. 
possibly for the moon and Mars, and definitely for aircraft carriers. Again, you heard it here first. Why so important? Because it projects your power. All the other minor powers are starting to fade, like the UK and France. They're getting rid of aircraft carriers because they can't afford it. They can't afford it, and they don't got the backbone to take an aircraft carrier off the coast of China and really threaten it because China would laugh at them. The United States would laugh at them, too, if they did it. So controlling territorial seas is the next big fight we're seeing right now, and it's happening all over planet Earth, and China's not getting left behind. In fact, it's ahead of the curve. It's it's island chain defense strategy is they have two lines. First island chain is lit up there in red. Second island chain is lit up in green, uh, uh, blue, I'm sorry. What they're saying is that China is saying this. China says first island chain is part of our national defense policy. We need to completely dominate all the water within the first island chain. That is protecting our coastline. And by the way, besides the uh, South China Sea, which we'll get to in a minute, no one really has too big of a problem with that. Yes, there's territorial conflicts between China and, and South Korea in the water. There's territorial conflicts between China and uh, Japan uh, about some islands in the water that they're saying, I own this island. No, we own this island. And so China's saying outright, this, we're drawing a line. We're telling you we own everything inside of this up to our coastline and we are going to defend it as if it is Chinese soil, period. You will notice that Taiwan is behind that red uh, first line of defense. First line of defense, first line of offense, first island chain. So they're very clear about this. We own first island chain. That is part of China, period. No debates, no questions asked. If you roll your boat in past this line, it is considered an attack on China. Again, it gets a little more murky when we get down to South China Sea, but we'll get to that. I wanted to establish the principle about this is how passionately the Chinese military and the Chinese government considers this island chain strategy. Let me say it again. Everything behind the red line is ours. It is ours. If you, anyone else on planet Earth rolls a boat in here, we will consider that an attack on Chinese soil. Okay, that's how serious they take it. And this will help you understand the South China Sea thing. The second island chain is much more interesting uh, because it goes, it, it kind of encompasses Japan down to Guam, which the United States controls, all the way down to the Philippines. And this is an area that they don't want to own or say they own, but they certainly want to be able to project aircraft carrier and naval and air power up to that line soon. So, again, they haven't completely sorted out everything behind the first island chain. Second island chain is their wish list. They will be able to defend those waters with their advanced military in the very near future. Got Make sense so far? First island chain, second island chain. By the way, here's what those US, uh, 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 the U.S. version looks like compared to the Chinese version. I will only note that the U.S. version... And the Chinese version mainly differ because in the Chinese version, China goes ahead and kind of carves off pieces of Japan and Korea <laughs> and says, well, Japan is an island chain. So Japan is part of our first island chain. I'm not suggesting that they're going to take over Japan, but thinking strategically and defensively, they're saying we will defend everything up to this point as if it's ours. Okay. Uh, all right. That brings us back to this expanding territorial reach. 
Uh, some would say that's actually a third island chain as well, by the way, that goes out to the middle of the Pacific to include Hawaii. Uh, again, not include like China's going to own it, but the island chain strategy is about how far a field can we defend. Can we territorially defend ourselves? Can we territorially control these waters? So again, for those that are brave enough or brash enough to say, oh, we have a third island chain that goes all the way up to Hawaii. Basically, they're saying, hey, China owns half the Pacific Ocean, or we will strategically defend half the, uh, the Pacific Ocean. Okay. So now we get back to, okay, to get these island chain defense strategies in place, now we have to start looking at some brass tacks, and it's starting to cause some problems worldwide. Because China's rich, because China's powerful, because they're militarily and culturally and technologically advanced, because they are now one of two major world powers, they are pushing out. Again, uh, this is not a judgment call, and I'm not saying China's bad for doing it. Every major power does this. The United States does it and still doing it. So China's doing in its mind what is naturally a great power does. Expand a power outward for internal defense and for maximum influence around the rest of the world. Uh, however, uh, China doubling down on its territorial claims. It's causing conflict across Asia. I'm just reading off some headlines here. Southeast Asian countries, mostly under the ASEAN umbrella, are starting to kind of push back about China claiming so much of the South China Sea. That's why this other uh, story says danger in the South China Sea. Uh, the Trump administration has dramatically increased the number of show of force missions in the South China Sea. That is true. Uh, China-U.S. relations PLA slams provocative action as U.S. sells warship through South China Sea. Okay, what's all this with the South China Sea? What the hell is it? Why, why are we keep talking about the South China Sea? Isn't it China's? Because it has the word China in it. <laughs> well, uh, does the United States own Latin America because the word America's in it? I don't think so. So this is the thorniest issue which has come about because... Some Chinese thinkers, and I want to say this has been decades ago now, when they started to get their act together and started to think about becoming a world power again and projecting that power outward, some Chinese thinker drew something called the nine-dash line. And sometimes you'll hear the ten-dash line. Sometimes you'll hear the eleven-dash line. And they literally, was someone just pulled out a map and said, uh, tick, 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 there's nine lines. China owns this, South China Sea. <laughs> and the thing is that uh, lots of other, uh, the whole South China Sea is literally entirely south of China. So if you go by the international uh, law of the sea convention, let me go back, um, that I believe China is a signatory to, uh, every country is supposed to own about 200 nautical miles off their own coast. And then you can petition to control even more if your continental shelf the actual geological continental shelf is more than 200 nautical miles. You can claim that and say yes, and all the resources uh, in this territory is actually part of our country. So 200 miles off the coast of North Carolina, that's still United States property. 200 miles uh, uh, you know, off of the Irish coast, that's still Ireland. Okay, Ireland owns the fish in it, the oil underneath of it. And if, if some other country's boats float too close to Ireland, you can be like, hey, what's up? You're on our territory. That's not cool. That's the international law of the sea. Well, if you look at the South China Sea, China ain't nowhere near it. China proper is nowhere near it. And the Philippines and Vietnam and Malaysia and Brunei and lots of other entities, including Taiwan, are saying, dudes, you can't, 
What are you doing, dudes? You can't just draw nine dashes and say that you own all the property that is literally off our coast. And China says, yeah, we can. And we did. And we still do. And here's how we're proving that we do. Uh, it's something called the Spratly Islands. A, sprat, a spat over the Sprat, as I like to call them. The Spratly Islands are all these little dots you see, these Chinese flags, right? And you even see some Malaysian flags. Is that Malaysian? That's some Malaysian flags in there. And maybe even some Filipino flags. Yep, I see some Filipino flags. All these are basically little coral atolls or little spits of sand. They're little chunks of rock. They're dank-ass islands. They've been unpopulated forever. Okay, they're literally not big enough to inhabit. There's no people there. And for decades now, China has been rolling its military down there and construction crews and building islands and adding to the existing islands and bringing in sand and rock and making the islands bigger and establishing military bases on the islands and putting the Chinese flag on the islands. And I remember reporting on this in class years ago that the Chinese were audacious enough. And sorry to all my Chinese friends, but it is audacious. It's hilarious. I'm not saying they're right or wrong. I favor wrong on this, but the Chinese were so audacious that they were sending heavily pregnant women down to these little rock islands to squat and kick out a baby. And then then when the baby is born, they say, ah, Chinese baby, Chinese citizen, Chinese soil. How baby born, Chinese soil. It's our <laughs> wait what? I, I honestly, it's no more audacious or goofy than, you know, a bunch of white dudes from Britain rolling over to India and planting a flag and saying, Well, the British flag is here, so I guess this is ours now. Anyway, I'm sure I would be infuriating Chinese citizens who are exceptionally proud because of that national pride I was talking about earlier. But this is turning into a full-fledged battle royale because these are international waters. By, by all accounts, every country on planet Earth except China says, uh, we don't think this is Chinese territory. It's not even near your coast. In which case China says, oh yeah, but all these islands are Chinese. And so 200 miles in the direction of all these islands is ours. Uh, and this is, these are international waters and they're heavily, uh, heavily uh, trafficked international waters. I mean, lots of cargo ships and, and oil shipments and everything flows through this part of the world. And so the world has kind of been pushing back saying, hey, yeah, you know, your first island chain thing, we get that. Um, but this is a stretch. And for its part, every time China gets a little uppity and says, nope, this is Chinese territory. Nobody better come in without our permission. Almost every time that happens, the United States sends a warship just sailing through it, waving, going, Hey, fellas. Hi. Yeah, we're here. China says, you can't do that. Oh, you mean that? Oh, here comes a second U.S. warship. Hey. Hi, everybody. Uh, Chinese did this with airspace over this area as well, not too long ago. China said, no one is allowed to be in this airspace without Chinese air traffic control permission. And <laughs> literally within an hour and a half, the United States sent some jets just to fly over it. I'm sorry. I'm not laughing because I'm like, rah, rah, the United States. I'm laughing at the hijinks between the two major powers uh, of the 21st century. You're like, oh my gosh, guys, seriously? Is this what we're fighting about already? So now we get back to the aircrafts. So we got the islands that are being claimed. They're also being claimed, uh, areas being claimed by the surrounding countries. 
And then you have the wild card United States who is saying, well, we're the only country powerful enough to push back. So we're just going to keep using the waters and not recognize this Chinese claim. And this is why people are getting more and more pissed off. And the story I showed you two slides ago was you, uh, Donald Trump has been sending more patrols than ever before. That is true. Uh, but you can't pick on Trump. Barack Obama sent a bunch over there too. And George W. Bush did it before Barack Obama. So this has been an ongoing 20 to 30 year situation, but the Chinese have continued to build more islands and expand islands and put more military bases on the islands and put airstrips on these islands. So they have been slowly cementing control, at least over the islands, whether the world will just allow them to own all the water is still up for debate. And the militarization of all this stuff has a lot of us rightly worried because just like what the, I'd say the two biggest flashpoints on planet earth right now are the South China Sea and actually the Eastern Mediterranean, uh, which we should talk about tomorrow. Uh, but in both places, you have a lot of different countries who have a lot of different ships floating around with a lot of different claims of people saying, I own this water. And it's only a matter of time before you get a hot headed captain of a ship or a radical patrol group that does something crazy and shots start getting fired. And that's how wars start. So hopefully you now understand why the South China Sea is such a central part of this whole projection of power, the place where it will probably come to heads first with the international community and probably the United States. It's probably not even going to be Taiwan. It's probably going to be down here because as China becomes more aggressive with its policy, the United States, especially under the Trump administration, has grown even more aggressive as well. So you get two aggressive groups together floating around the water. Uh, that's when trouble can happen. You combine that, everything I've talked about so far with China pushing out its soft and now hard power. And you combine that with the last four years of a Trump administration that has been in a trade war with the United, with the China, uh, uh, with the China. It sounds like, just sounded like Donald Trump. <laughs> when it trade war with the China the China. Was that when Alec Baldwin was making fun of him on Saturday Night Live? China. We have a trade war with the China. Uh, the four-year now long trade war that's hurt trade between both countries and the international community and supply chains are starting to reorient themselves to not include the United States or not include China. That's problematic for all sides. Uh, this is just a handful of stories from this afternoon that I picked up. Trump is losing the Cold War with China. Biden's economic plans could escalate Trump's trade wars with China, even if Biden wins. So no matter who wins the upcoming election, no one thinks that the trade issue itself is going to get any better between the U.S. and China. And you add that to the existing Spratly Island spat that I've now referenced. And then you add to that, at the bottom of this slide, Trump administration just advanced almost 2 billion arms sales to Taiwan on on, before a major election, which he might not win, Trump sells $2 billion worth of arms to China. I'm sorry, to Taiwan. Uh, so you kind of start adding these things together. And the crux of this whole talk was about this epic Asian epicenter shift that's been underway. And I believe the Boyer call on this, and I made this call five years ago, China is a world power now. It's not striving to be a world power. Uh, it's not trying to be a major world economy. It's not trying to exert soft power influence. It's not trying to exert hard power influence. It is doing all of those things. And it is a world power. And I don't know if you took my class, if you learned the G7 and the G8 
and then we're back to the G7 because Russia got kicked out of the G7. We actually now live in a G2 world. And the G2, and G always stood for great, the great economies uh, of the United States and Japan and, and Russia and, and, and UK and France. And that was the G6. Uh, G2 is more appropriate because we do live in a great two power world. And those great two are the United States and China. If these two countries can't figure out how to get along this century, buddy, it's going to be a long one or possibly a short century. This was just from earlier today. Korea is actually caught in a verbal Cold War as China becomes more assertive in its foreign policy and its willingness to piss off other uh, great powers now. Chinese President Xi Jinping definition of the Korean War prompted Washington to hit back, raising additional concerns of the superpower rivalry considering uh, causing a new Cold War. Xi, on the uh, 70th anniversary last week, called the fight uh, in Korean War uh, against imperialist invaders. Huh, that was interesting. <laughs> and I and I love that, I've uh, never said that before. Uh, and I love, I just pulled out this last line that I've uh, stretched out the biggest here. Experts say Xi's speech should be taken in the context of China's rising confidence amid its competition with the United States. So again, this is why we are uh, at equal great powers at this point. We, the United States and China. I should always take myself out of it, even though I live in America. Uh, and in this two world power scenario, I do like to point out some stories that I talked about last week, and I would love to do a whole nother podcast about tomorrow night or on Wednesday, if you want, of this thing called the Quad. Just in the last week, uh, I in China, Australia joins the Quad drill with the United States, Japan, and India, a joint military exercise that's going to occur in the future. Australia, uh, uh, both of these stories about this Australian naval drill, which Australia has hesitantly joined. It usually wants to stay on the sideline, not to piss off China. But as China becomes more assertive, let me go back. Experts say cheese speech should be taken into context of China's rising confidence and competition with the U.S. And you have to think about this. China has every right to be proud, every right to be confident, every right to exert its influence as much as it can and or wants to. But there are consequences to that. And the consequences are that now countries like Australia that did not want to offend China and wanted to trade with China and wanted ever just to be on the sidelines are now being forced into action or forced into a call of action of, hey, it's not that you got to pick a side, but you, you, you got to get in the game here if you, unless you want to be rolled over by China. So the consequences of China's rise, uh, right, the second are this thing called the Quad. And, and new international relationships are being formed that have never existed before. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has been hanging out in India for the last three days. The U.S. never hangs out in India. The U.S. has never had a relationship with India. Hell, Bill Clinton was the first person who went to India, I think, oh my God, since mask, independence. His mask is hilariously goofy. Um uh, India will sign a military agreement that actually got signed earlier today for sharing sensitive satellite data between defense ministries of India and the United States. Do you think that's a coincidence, my friend? Let me answer it for you. It ain't. The U.S. has never had a relationship, not a defense or any otherwise, with India. Look for the United States to also push very hard. Whoever wins this coming election, the United States is going to push exceptionally hard to uh, uh, revamp 
and recalibrate its South Asian policy to favor India and try to push hard for more economic trade between the U.S. and India. Uh, and that goes to the other story. India, U.S. begin meetings in New Delhi on a variety of defense and information sharing topics. Uh, the Times, Asia Times reports today, U.S. and Japan forces an exercise Keen Sword 21. That started today. That's different than the other one. This is just the United States and Japan who have always done uh, joint military force uh, maneuvers are putting it right out there. Every time you see one of these maneuvers happen, it pisses off China and they complain about it. And that's why you're seeing them happen. So this is a result. One thing leads to another. And this is a, a possible future podcast. Is there a quad rising uh, because of China's rise? Is there a quad rising to meet that challenge? And the quad is the United States, Japan, Australia, and India. Some say, nah, nothing's going to come of it. Others say, I like this one here uh, from the South China Morning Post. China, right to be concerned about quad's bright future, analysts say. Known as the quad, analysts say Beijing is growing more cautious about the informal, implicitly anti-China alliance. And uh, the one under that says, uh, many see the nucleus of an Asian NATO to contain China. Again, I'm not making fun of China. I'm a world observer. I want you to understand the world better. And I look at these things and I'm like, yes, these are the things we need to be thinking about. As China rises, the world and its subsequent parts, these nation states, are going to align or realign relationships to adjust to a rising two-power system. And that's what you're seeing happen. So is old NATO going to go away and a new Eurasian NATO start? I think it's entirely possible. And that's fascinating. Is China going to push out to control all of its second island chain? Very well could be. I don't know, but it's fascinating. That's the stuff that I wanted to talk to you about today. That's the stuff I just did talk to you about for another two hours. Love that we made it in barely under two hours, but we made it nonetheless. And I can field questions now. Or you can just all go away and say, my God, does this guy ever stop talking? Every time I just want to go for like an hour. and it. <laughs> I really thought I was going to have it this time. Uh, I don't know how to go back up or do I just not? I love that Yakov has already called me out for... Rich Chinese and Russian pregnant ladies also come to the USA to squat out babies and leave so these kids can have U.S. citizenship. <laughs> yeah, you're right. We also should have pointed out, Jacob, that um, with the inflow of chi new Chinese money and all the millionaires and billionaires, uh, I forget who had asked me about uh, acquiring U.S. assets. I've not seen the Chinese government acquire a whole lot of assets. I've seen Chinese government interest in acquiring agricultural lands. Uh, but there's been a lot of Chinese citizens in the Pacific Northwest, both in Canada and, say, Washington State and Oregon, buying properties, especially in uh, Canadian province of British Columbia. Uh, yeah, I mean, the United States, for uh, for all of this, the, the shit the United States takes on a daily basis from other world powers or people around the world or other cultural groups who say the United States sucks, uh, when you get a lot of money, it's funny, from any culture who becomes a millionaire... They come to the United States and buy stuff, buy property, and or uh, uh, maybe request for citizenship. We may be seeing the end of that era too, by the way, as China becomes perhaps a, a more, I don't know, accepting country that allows for international investment and a brighter spot 
for people to invest money in or move to. Right now, everybody loves coming to the United States because we're rich. We got some of the most awesome, hilarious culture. Uh, and we got this thing called freedom. Uh, I don't know that China will ever replace that as the world's draw for, you know, the United States has always been the world's draw for money and talent. And China certainly is technologically and equal to the U.S. right now and a booming economy, but they lack that freedom thing. So I think, I don't know that China will ever supplant the United States as the magnet for talent and, and, and people that the United States is. Okay. Um, Doug the Thug, Doug the Thug, uh, Lat says, I miss your classes, especially the wine class, which allow me to truly enjoy wine. Yeah, I think I'm going to, if I can get enough, you know, subscribers or followers or whatever you call it on Twitch, Doug, I'm actually thinking about um, doing the wine class again live um, here on Twitch. What, what, what happened? I'm trying to fix the alert. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, stay tuned, Doug. More may be coming in that direction with wine because I really need to revamp the wine class, too, and I want to do some fun stuff with that. Uh, uh, one case is China specifically developed aircraft killer missiles designed to attack aircraft carriers. Ooh, I don't doubt that. But if they have one, that means the U.S. has one, too. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Hokey Medic says aircraft carrier equals worldwide testicular fortitude. Love it. Love it. Um Billy Bob Hobdob says, disagree. Aircraft carriers are expensive and vulnerable. Good for punishing third world countries, though. <laughs> Just call it like you see it, Billy Bob. Uh, yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I'm so far behind on the comments. Uh, let's see. I would only argue with you, Billy Bob, that uh, they are important for the great power face-offs that are currently happening. So you can say that, yeah, well... We have missiles, so what do you need aircraft carriers for? Well, because I, if I can get my aircraft carrier to the middle of the Pacific, I'm halfway to bombing you already. And the closer I get it to you, the faster my bombs get to you. So, yeah, if an aircraft carrier gets right off the coast of your country, yeah, you can kill it pretty quickly, but that's not the point. The point is they can maneuver around humans with weapons of mass destruction that can get to you very, very quickly. And if you have the spinal fortitude, you can float that aircraft carrier around the South China Sea and dare someone to attack you. And that's really what I'm talking about here. It is a true projection of power literally on the sea. And you have to be there. You can't just say, oh, by the way, China, you don't own the South China Sea because we have missiles we can send there. And, uh... By the way, hitting an aircraft carrier in the middle of the ocean is not as easy as one thinks. Yes, I know we have superior technology and it can be done, but they move and the ocean's big. So being there still counts for nine-tenths of possession when it comes to water. And you're going to find out everybody's going to want more aircraft carriers because if you can have a circle of aircraft carriers around the eastern Mediterranean, then guess who owns the eastern Mediterranean? You do. Unless someone wants to start a war and blow them up. So that's what Turkey's going to end up doing too, by the way. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, I think I, I just spoke to uh, Salute13's question about aircraft carriers as well. Uh, let me go down to... Uh, I got I got you, Yakov, with the rich Russian and Chinese pregnant ladies. <laughs> and Hokey Medic says uh, to Billy Bob, trouble with a stealth sub is already intimidating anyone. You got to lose the whole stealth thing. There you go. Again, it's a aircraft carriers are going to continue to be important because they are a prominent projection of power. 
You're right. You could have submarines under every single one of the American aircrafts carriers and blow them up out of the water anytime you want to. But you have to choose to do that. The world just sees a bunch of aircraft carriers there. That's the projection of power. Okay. Uh, put sub bases on the island's eye. Woogie boogie. I believe the Chinese already have built a at least one underground sub base in the islands, which is what worries the United States a lot, and which is why the United States is increasing its presence there. Again, presence, increasing its presence. Aircraft carriers. Uh, we need a better name than the quad. How about Team Badass? I like that hokey medic. Uh, let's see. And I got lost, damn it. Do you think much of the world is mad at China over the coronavirus? Uh, or is much of the world mad at China over the coronavirus? No, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, I'm only living here. I know Donald Trump is mad at China for the coronavirus, and uh, I suppose many of his supporters follow his train of logic. Um, by the way, I could do a podcast about the coronavirus if you like. More about it from an epide epidemiological standpoint. I'm not that interested in all the politics of it. Uh, so no, I've not seen a lot of world outrage, outcry about the coronavirus just because it came from China. Uh, many plagues have come from China. Some plagues have come from other places. It just happens. Although there's reasons it happens, and that's what I would do a podcast about. Okay, uh, let's see. What else am I missing here? Um, India and the U.S. were never friends. Uh, Camera and the Map God. Um, India and the U.S. were never friends because, in because of Pakistan, but now that's pretty much over, so India will definitely be pals, in my opinion. I'm sure Wall Street will love the cheap labor there. Uh, I agree, Camera and the Map God, on all points of that statement. Uh, the India and the U.S. actually originally weren't great friends because India refused to side up with the United States during the Cold War. Uh, it was part of that League of Nations which refused to get involved in the Cold War at all. Does anybody remember what that group of nations is called? Anybody who took my class? The group of countries that said, we are not participating in the Cold War. We're not joining the commie side, and we're not joining the U.S. side. It was countries like Yugoslavia, Ethiopia, India... Do you remember this acronym? Ah, Billy Bob's already got it. First on the draw, the Non-Aligned Movement, N-A-M. So India was one of the founding members of the Non-Aligned Movement, and that kind of put the United States off a bit. Uh, and also because during the Cold War, India bought some weapon systems and stuff from Russia, uh, Soviet Union, uh, because India was always an independent power player. And because of that, uh, the United States then allied up with Pakistan next door, India's arch nemesis and rival. So that also caused greater friction between the U.S. and India over time. And now you're seeing because of war on terrorism and Osama bin Laden being caught on Pakistani soil, and Pakistan's got a ton of troubles of its own, uh, the relationship, as you adeptly have pointed out there, the relationship between the U.S. and Pakistan is all but done. I mean, it, it's a baked potato, stick a fork in it, that sucker's done. So it's another reason why there's a, a big strategic shift that's going towards India now. Oh, and by the way, Pakistan joined the Belt and Initiative program and took a bunch of money from China to build out uh, its huge port in Peshawar, I think. So And, and, and the, uh, the Chinese are investing in northern Pakistan for a rail point up there, I think. So Pakistan is already on board with the Belt and Road Initiative and a couple different uh, uh, construction projects 
which of course doesn't make the United States none too happy either. So strategic realignment occurring because of China's actions in Pakistan and also Pakistan relations with the United States. Good point. Uh, let's see. Uh, Jacob says, uh, uh, one case is I agree the U.S. and China will do a lot of business together in India as a democracy. Yeah, that's why they're, that's why the quad is it's kind of forming foundation stone is democracies. Obviously, capitalist systems, because pretty much everybody's capitalist now, but democracy is their core, soup du jour, nom du jour, whatever the hell you want to call it, nom de plume. <laughs> uh, it certainly is a bit of a cover for a strategic alignment to not contain China, but modify Chinese behavior in its periphery. Uh, Yakov says, I don't think China accepts any immigration uh, or, or very little, and China's general welfare is not competitive at all. That is true. Yeah, I, I don't. I really don't know the policies for Chinese migration. And, and it's tough to say this, and again, hopefully no Chinese people will take offense to this because China's a great country. I love China. I've been there a bunch of times. I would go back. Uh, but I don't know about living there. Once you get used to certain freedoms and certain styles of life, it is hard to go to a place that just simply doesn't have that. And that, that was the point I was trying to make earlier. China's blowing up for aerospace. China's blowing up for all defense uh, uh, technologies. China's blowing up for its space program. China's blowing up for green energy China's blowing up for food, you know, technologies. There's a lot going on there. And I know that talented people worldwide and academics and business people want to be part of that. But it's if the United States was doing that, everybody would go to the United States first because it's just such an easier medium to move around in. And you don't have to worry about your personal freedoms or liberties or stuff like that. So I don't know that China is certainly becoming a beacon uh, of technological advancement, but I don't know that it'll ever be the magnet. And again, mostly because I also don't know its immigration policies. It may be very hands-off of like, no, don't come here. I mean, that's the way Japan is. Uh, let's see. Um, uh, Woogie Boogie says, can you comment on the 5G battle occurring across the globe with Huawei? I wish I could, Woogie Boogie. In fact, that might have to be another podcast that I'll have to go do some research in. I've never, I've never understood it, only that I thought Korea had 10G like 20 years ago. <laughs> I remember reporting that in class. We would always be laughing of, oh my God, US is going to be the 2G. And it's like, you do know that North, South Korea has like 10G and it's all free everywhere in the entire country all the time. So I don't know enough about the Gs. But it seems like something I should look into and have a good time talking about it. And let's see, Hokey Medic put in the link there. But the uh, kind of but the old poster in this article says 4.85 acres of sovereign territory anywhere in the world, non-aligned Switzerland. That's all I got. Uh, oh, we have a new subscriber. 1K, 1CK3R subscribed at tier one. I don't even know what that means. Is it kind of like peer one? Do I get to pick out some pottery? <laughs> Thank you so much. 1K, 1CK. I, Is it one kicker? One kicker. I don't know. But if you, if you, if you can track me down and I'm not hard to track down at uh, Virginia Tech, I'll send you one of these. You give me a private communique at J-O-B-O-Y-E-R at V-T dot E-D-U. I'll send you a sticker. Is that cool? 
Are we good? I'm sorry, what? It's kick. It's eye kicker in leet speak. I don't even know what that means. Hey, how would you guys feel about... Oh, gotcha. Um, hey, what's up, Michael? Uh, appreciate the uh, tier one contribution or whatever the hell we call it. <laughs> subscriber. I'm sorry, subscriber. <laughs> subscriber. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. much more of this except with worse content coming up soon. <laughs> During the, in the Plat Adventure channel near you on Twitch. I'm still learning this stuff. I'm old. And wine stuff. Yeah, so we'll start a wine show. Maybe we'll go back and forth between the wine and the current events. One day we can do wine. Yeah, let's do a wine talk at least one day a week next next semester. Let's do it. I mean, I may even start before. What day works? I don't know. What, what day is a good wine day? Wine Wednesdays? Uh, let's see. Actually, Yakov has a question. Do you think a one-party system in China which gains profit for the government itself would end up breaking China? Uh, they're doing a pretty good job so far, Yakov. I mean, um, one of the reasons why, and I don't mean to end on a dour note for us avid um, Republicans, and I mean Republican with a lowercase r, not uppercase, uh, us pro-democracy folks us human rights and individual liberties folks. I don't mean to end on a bad note for us folks, uh, but you do have to understand this. There's a reason why dictatorship is on the rise around the world. There's a reason why autocratic states are on the rise in the world right now. You can look at Turkey, which has become a full-fledged dictatorship, almost full-fledged in the last 10 to 20 years. Look at what's happening in Belarus. Look what is happening in Austria, Hungary, uh, with these parties that want to close borders. Uh, you look at Brazil. You, you, a certain degree, look at Trump. And again, I'm not. I don't want to get into politics of the United States, but very bold, assertive, strongman politics. Uh, look at Putin in Russia. Uh, this, there's more of these guys in charge now, wanting to be in power forever and do anything to stay in power forever. And leading their countries and, and with, with popular vote, leading their countries uh, with a consensus of the majority. There's a reason all that's happening right now. And the reason's China. So while we like democracy, it's clunky, it's messy, it doesn't always work, it doesn't work quickly, it's riddled with corruption, uh, and you just can't get things done. And so people increasingly you're looking at a troubled world and a threatening world and they're looking at strongman leaders saying that Ch China's getting stuff done. China's getting stuff done. China's powerful. China's taking over the world because they're so awesome because they're a one-party state slash wannabe dictatorship. Uh, so lots of other countries and peoples in other countries are looking at China as a model for the future. Why don't we just let the state take over all the major industries and let one person make all the decisions and streamline it just like China? Um, I think that's a fool's errand, personally. Not because, not just because I'm pro-democracy. Uh, it's more that China is a very unique example. And China is the, the state with the longest history on planet Earth. And China has a very cohesive cultural base. And China has 4,000 years of, of, of proven history 
as an autocratic one-party state. It's part of the Chinese experience. Of course it works for China. Uh, anyone that thinks they're just going to flip over and suddenly put into power a Putin or a Xi Jinping and their country's going to be all happy-go-lucky, go check out Brazil right now. I mean, it, it just uh, that model works for China. It, it's very unlikely to work almost anywhere else. You'd have to consider the site and situation is what we call it in geography. What's happening in this place? What's its background? How, how did it get to this point? And what are its features of its history and demography and culture that will allow one system to work and maybe another system will fail? Honestly, it's probably why Mao Zedong just assumed that communism would work because he was a strong leader and it was a collective, autocratic, led type of situation. But it didn't because it didn't allow the Chinese people to express their economic energy appropriately. The current system China has does just that. And in exchange for everybody getting richer, the central party holds all the political power and holds all the cards and makes everybody do what they want them to do. China's system only starts to be in trouble when the money stops, uh, when people stop getting richer, when there's the next generational flip where your kids are poorer than you. That's when, the, that's when that system gets in trouble. And that, my friends, is when democracies shine. When systems become stagnant, cluttered, chaotic, corrupt, and need to be flipped out, dictatorships never want to leave democracies flip it out and get on with it. So each system has its own strength. Damn, I, is this recording? Because this is good stuff I'm throwing down right now. I'm just making this up, but it makes sense in my brain. Does it make sense in yours? I hope so, but for now I need to go eat lunch slash dinner or have a martini or three and consider all this great knowledge we just dropped here on this awesome Twitch platform on the Platavenger channel. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, if you have ideas for tomorrow, uh, email them to me. We'll do another podcast tomorrow. I swear it's not going to be two hours. I swear. China's a big topic, so it's easy to, to start answering questions and get off topic. Uh, but tomorrow, we'll, we'll do something more focused. I kind of... Here's what I want to talk about tomorrow, if you guys want to tune in. Uh, Turkey has been trash-talking everybody for a week. Let's do Turkey's trash-talking will be tomorrow's topic. And it won't... It won't go two hours. Turkey's Trash Talking is up on deck tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Thanks for you subscribers. Uh, give a like. Give a thumbs up, a follow, a, a subscribe. And we actually have our good friend uh, uh, Plaid Klaus, the Plaid artist that's going to make some emotes for us. Right, Katie? Did I get it? Not emojis. He's going to handcraft some world leader or, or Plaid Avenger emotes for people that subscribe. I'd love to know what all these terms mean. <laughs> but for now, thanks for tuning in. Have a great evening. Hope you learned something. As always, party on. Do I end record or end stream first? End Just by clicking record? I had to click it twice. Yeah, it's a good stream.